Welcome to the Animal Rescue Podcast, what you always wanted to know but didn't know who to ask. I'm your host, Keisha Ferrand. My guest this week is Marika Bell, host of the podcast, The Deal with Animals. We have a fascinating discussion about human-animal interaction, the research that has gone into it, and the work she's doing on her podcast. You can learn more about Marika's work at her website, thedealwithanimals.com, or on Facebook at The Deal With Animals. If you're like me and enjoy a good book, you can also check out her recommendations, Dog is Love by Clive Wynn and An Immense World by Ed Young. Hello, Marika. Thank you so much for joining me on the Animal Rescue Podcast. Hi, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yes. And did I pronounce your name correctly? Yes, Marika. Perfect. Okay. Off to a great start so far. So you have your own podcast. It's the Anthro Zoo podcast. Uh, close. It's it, So the podcast title is called The Deal with Animals. Okay. And it is an anthrozoology podcast. It's gotcha. about the connection and interaction between humans and other animals. Okay. So that is actually a really fascinating topic. How did you get started? Like what got you involved in anthrozoology in the first place? Okay. So originally anthrozoology was something that sort of developed over the last about three decades uh, and it was something that was sort of in the works in different scholarly areas when people were talking about uh, human and animal connections and interactions. And and that sort of got the ball rolling a little bit with some of the older scholars who were interested in this area that wasn't really covered by things like animal behavior, which is really about uh, the science of why animals migrate or why animals choose the mates they choose or why they're singing a certain song. Right. So that's that's animal behavior, animal ethology. Uh, this was really more about that connection and almost a anthropological, you know, human to animal connection that that people were interested in. Um, and the most well-known, of course, is our interaction with uh, our companion animals. So a lot of it has to do with the research into our interactions with our companion animals. Um, but it really spreads even wider into areas of conservation, into areas of how we interact with our environment and the animals within our environment, the animals in our backyard. So it really connects with all of the ways in which humans and animals interact. And sometimes we don't really think about those ways or even you know those times where we don't have a personal connection with an animal, for instance. Uh, you are still affected by how other people treat animals um, in, say, how they're being used to create uh, medicines or, you know, just what you're eating when you pick up a sandwich. So we have these connections even when we don't really think about them. And, and that's what interested me. And I couldn't find that anywhere when I was going to university. I ended yeah. up going for a zoology degree because that sort of seemed like the right area um, but again, it wasn't really what I wanted. I thought I wanted to maybe work with big cats um, because I loved that idea of a connection with a with a wild animal. Yeah. That was just a really fascinating idea. But again, all the times I, I talked to advisors or anybody about that, it was all about ethology and animal behavior, which is also very interesting. I love that stuff, but it wasn't really where my, my passion was. Yeah. And so... I just kind of kept going on and uh, 
getting into animal welfare. I did work at zoos for a little while. I became a dog trainer. I got a CPDT certification, uh, certified professional dog trainer through the CPDT council. And, um, and I went sort of that route uh, until eventually I uh, had some time come up and I started looking back into going for a master's degree and found that lo and behold, people is, were starting to actually do the thing that I wanted to do back in the day. And now there were degrees available in human animal studies, in zooanthropology and anthrozoology, which are all generally around the same thing, but sometimes uh, look at the idea from slightly different perspectives. So I went and got a master's in anthrozoology through the University of Exeter, which is a fantastic program. And and that really got me start thinking about all of these other ways in which animals and humans interact that I really hadn't thought about before. Uh, and then when COVID hit, yeah. I, you know, needed to talk to people about <laughs> things, anything really, yeah. and uh, having a creative outlet. I just had just had two young children and uh, my brain was turning to mush. I had mommy brain and needed I needed both of those uh, creative outlet and someone to talk to that was, you know, besides the age, you know, above the age of five and, um, you know, not just my husband who mostly just wants to talk about cars. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, he's not as into animals. Oh, so I, I you know, was just watching TV one night and I had been thinking about it for a little while, you know, because I had actually never listened to a podcast before. Yeah, ever. Wow. I knew about podcasts. Yeah. Uh, and I am terrible with technology. I hate learning new technology. Same. Um, Same. Hate it. Yeah. And like, I will resist getting a new phone for so long. Yes. Same. Yeah. I put it off. I will do the oldest model I can. Mm -hmm. I I completely get you. Yes. Yeah. Having to reinstall everything. I don't know. It just drives me insane. Um. And my husband loves it. So he constantly wants me to get a new phone. He constantly wants to, and And you know, like, okay, I really should appreciate that more. People <laughs> don't have that. But I don't. I really don't appreciate it. So anyway, that's kind of where I was coming from. So I thought I should start a podcast because, you know, why not? Um, and I said to him, you know, I, I think that I should do this. And he he looked at me and he, he asked, he goes, have you, do you, are you listening to podcasts now? And I said, no, I haven't, haven't listened to any. <laughs> I said, well, I think you'd be great at it. So, yeah, I, I I thought so too. So I decided to teach myself how to do it, the technology, and and you know get to talk to people about the thing that I cared about the most, besides my own babies, and yeah. uh, really, you know, get to really particularly talk to people who are doing this research, doing the interactions that I you know don't have access to at the moment, and uh, and getting to learn from them because you know they're doing the research, they're writing the books. And I want to, I want to hear about all of that. Yeah. You said something that piqued my interest a little bit before when you were talking about the two different majors that it's anthrozoology, right? Mm -hmm. And zooanthropology. Yeah. And so I understand that they come at it from a different perspective, but mm -hmm. how is the perspective different mm. Between so I think it depends on who you who you talk to uh, and who came up with the program for which particular school. But um, anthrozoology is kind of talking about, OK, so humans 
and animals. And generally when you have you know, a, an ology, you're really focusing on the, the hard science aspect of it. So yeah. the, the quantitative uh, focus of research, whereas anthropology is considered a softer science where you're focusing more on the qualitative or the interactional aspect of it. And I think sometimes uh, you might pick one or the other based on your interest, whether you're more interested in sort of the the qualitative or more interested in the quantitative. Uh, but what the Exeter program really tried to do was intertwine those and really embrace the multidisciplinary aspect of um how humans and animals interact and how qualitative science and quantitative science can help each other to understand this relationship that we have better because uh, you know you can get a lot of amazing science from hard science, from quantitative science, where you can get numbers and you can calculate things and come up with a good rule of thumb for stuff, right? It's really hard science is great for generalizations and saying, okay, this is generally what happens and this is what we could generally expect from this other interaction. Uh, but qualitative science can also be extremely useful, especially in relational interactions, because qualitative science, you you get more of a narrative. You get more of an individual uh, understanding of what's going on, which can lead to a lot deeper insights into an issue. So I think it's it's really important that we appreciate what both of these aspects of science can bring to an area of research, especially something like anthrozoology, where um, where we are so differently intertwined with animals in so many different ways. Yeah. I'm curious about the evolution of human animal interaction. And, you know, sometimes I see people talk about, you know, back in the old days, if your dog was eating, your parents would say, don't mess with the dog. If you get bit, it's your own fault. And now it's changed. So I'm curious about the evolution of how humans have interacted with animals and what your thoughts are on that. That topic just mm. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. One that definitely comes up in the podcast on occasion because yeah. it, it really is a fascinating subject it's changed so much. And I think a lot of that has to do with culture. I mean, there are some cultures that still um, interact with animals in the way that you described as more of a, a, a traditional Western way, old, older style Western way. Yeah. Where, you know, you, you, you understand that the animal has its natural reactions. And yeah. if you mess with an animal while they're eating, they are likely to bite you because yeah. they don't want to be messed with. And then if you do that, if you make that choice, even as a child, people go, well, you shouldn't have done that. You were told not to and you did it anyway. And right. then leave it at that. Right. And now what might happen is, oh, my God, the dog bit you. There's been some sort of betrayal <laughs> in the family. This dog has chosen to bite a child when they should have been completely OK with a, somebody sticking their hands in the dog's food dish. Right. And in fact, if they aren't, then there's something wrong with that dog. Um, so it's gone really, you know, the opposite to what it used to be here in the Western world. And uh, I think a lot of that stems from us being a less agricultural um, culture now. Yeah. Where we, we aren't living with animals. We aren't working with animals. Um, so most of us just don't really understand animals in the way that we used to. 
Yeah. Uh, we don't give animals that leeway to be themselves. Um, our expectations for them have uh, changed and altered based on Disneyfication of animals. This yeah. idea that animals are have to be these loyal, perfect things or else they're they're naughty and they're bad and whatever. Um, yeah. So I think that those both of those are big reasons why in our in our culture now we treat animals so differently. Our expectations of animals have changed so much. Yeah. I'm noticing a lot more. I love this word and I always struggle to pronounce it. Anthropomorphization. Mm-hmm. Anthropomorphizing yeah. animals where, you know, you're giving them these human characteristics when they're not humans. Right. So anthro meaning human, morph meaning to change, right? So yeah. anthropomorphizing. Yeah. Um, and, and it's actually a subject I've dealt with uh, and looked into quite a lot because I also have these questions around it uh, as to what is useful anthropomorphizing and what is not. So humans are animals, right? This might shock some people, <laughs> but <laughs> but they actually are animals. Um, physiologically, we are animals, even though obviously we are different in a lot of ways. Um, but those differences are more a matter of spectrum than a matter of of actual difference right we have we have different abilities but those abilities are abilities are are still many animals are still capable of those similar sorts of abilities but just on a much more um yeah a, a slightly different scale or a smaller scale so yeah. but they still have them we're still part of that same group right we are we are animals uh so once that's out of the way we can we can say okay so but we are human animals we look at the world in a very human way um and other animals are going to look at it from their perspective also called an umwelt and there's some fantastic books around this uh, one i would recommend for people if they're interested in thinking about different animal perspectives is one that just came out last year called an immense world by ed yong such a good read so well written not super like he's not a scientist so he doesn't write for scientists he's writing he's a journalist so it's it's yeah. a fantastic book um so highly recommend that one kind of i mean even me i think about this stuff all the time it blew my mind like yeah yeah so cool so say a a dog even which we're very familiar with sees and sees the world in a very different way they're, they're much more reactive through their nose a lot less through their eyes they don't even have the same kind of eyesight we do um their world is much more uh, a nasally focused word, nasally, yeah. nasally focused world. Um, and, and they hear much better than us too. Right. So they are going to, those are the senses that they're going to lean on much more than they're going to lean on things like touching things with their hands or their paws mm -hmm. in this case, or yeah. visually seeing things. Uh, they're going to sniff things. They're going to hear things and they're probably going to taste things. Uh, so, when you go from that perspective and you say, okay, a dog is acting a certain way, but we're looking at from an anthro, an anthro point of view and a human point of view, uh, we might make some assumptions based on what they're doing that aren't accurate and yeah. don't really uh, portray what that dog might be thinking or doing. Uh, so it's, that can actually be really detrimental to animals if we if we put our emotions on them or our assumptions for what they might be feeling because of what we might be feeling. Right. So that's that's sort of the the downside to anthropomorphizing, but there is actually a really important thing to think about in terms of embodied empathy. Mm 
and uh, and critical anthropomorphism, where you're thinking, okay, so I'm not a dog, but I am a mammal, and I am I do have a similar kind of brain, and the same chemistry is going on in my brain that is going on in their brain in similar moments. And if we can understand, uh, certainly their their species specific. Uh, behaviors that are normal for their species and that animal's individual history and how our connection with them and on our our understanding of how the brain works in general uh we can actually do some critical anthropomorphizing where we say okay i can't really know what it's like to be a dog or a sheep or a bat but knowing as much as i do about them and about that animal's individual history i can make some safe assumptions about what's going on in that animal's thought process. Yeah. And then I can behave according to, to that. Um, and I think as long as you know that history and you know, those normal species behaviors, you can actually make a pretty, you know, darn good uh, assumption, especially yeah. in a case like a dog that we have lived with dogs for so long now, we've almost co-evolved with them that, right. you know, they've got eyebrows, like yes. they have eyebrows for us, not for them. Right. They, they have evolved eyebrows because dogs with eyebrows have more interesting and more readable expressions for humans. I did not know that. Do- black dogs are harder to for people to read, which is often why I think they don't get adopted from shelters as easily because you can't see their their cute little eyebrows yes that's but so- a dog with eyebrows you know they're so expressive much more human face you have blown my mind right now i mean i've always been fascinated with my dog's eyelashes mm, so beautiful yes so now i'm gonna be looking at my dog's eyebrows yeah if you have a dog that has like really definitive eyebrows, well, I have one underneath me. Oh, yeah. he's got like white eyebrows. My yeah. two black dogs actually have the tan eyebrows. The tan eyebrows. That's yeah. yeah. My black and tans always have tan eyebrows. The yeah. dog I just adopted is blonde, like a golden retriever mm-hmm. or like a cocker spaniel. Yeah. And so she's sort of, it, you can't. Yeah, her eyebrows aren't nearly as expressive. I'm used to having the black and tan dogs with the with the really prominent eyebrows. Oh, I'm going to be watching that now with my dogs. Mm. <laughs> That's funny. So with the evolution of that, now I'm super curious. Has the evolution of the eyebrow also, is it connected to certain thoughts in the dog? You know how with humans, our eyebrows move mm. to express certain feelings or emotions. I mean, is that the same with dogs? That's a fascinating question. Yeah, it's it's actually not one I've looked into specifically. Yeah, but it is. You know, it there you know, your eyebrow movements. I think for for dogs are probably much more reactional and much more. You know, they don't think about like raising an eyebrow the way that humans right. do. Um, but you know, they'll look quizzically at something, and an eyebrow will raise. And you know, I think that it's it is connected because it's a behavior. Right. Um, so yeah, it it makes sense. Yeah. And how how do people study animals? One conversation that my husband and I have semi regularly is with regard to training dogs. And there are so many different philosophies out there for how to approach it, uh, tools, methodologies, all that. 
So mm. how have people studied animals to the point where training has, I don't know, a scientific grounding or mm-hmm. if, if that mm. makes sense. I mean, how do we know yeah. what we're doing when we're training a dog? Well, this is where the quant uh, quantitative science has really come in and, and really does shine because there are scientific methods to training. It's called learning theory. Um, and their learning theory is, is kind of amazing because it uh, really covers all animal training, not just humans and dogs. It's not just how dogs learn. It's how it's how basically everything learns. So you can take aspects of learning theory and train a hermit crab uh, or a goldfish. You know, you you can there there are animals that that you wouldn't even think about training that you could definitely train just knowing some basics of learning theory. Um, and I think one of the the best ones, of course, that most people have heard of is Pavlov and Pavlov's dogs. Right. So that's his type of of I won't go into all of the details because it's it's a little complicated, but essentially it's learning by conditioning. Right. You're making associations between one thing and another thing. And that's something pretty much everybody is aware of. Uh, the, the example I like to use is thinking of a uh, you're a kid, you know, in second grade who is mean to you. Do you remember her name or his name? Um, I actually, there was a kid in like fourth or fifth grade and Mm -hmm. yes, remember his name. Okay. (laughs) Would you ever name your child or even a dog that name? No. Why? Um, it's too much of a human name, but then also that association. Right. Yeah. The association is, is a really strong learning technique. Mm-hmm. If if that's the only thing you know and the only way you know how to interact with animals is teaching them by association, you actually will go a really long way. Uh, because dogs will learn by association before they learn anything else. Mm-hmm. Even if you're trying to train something, they are learning by association under the surface of whatever you're actually trying to train. Yeah. So if you are frustrated while you're training, if you're using, say, negative reinforcements or punishments or uh, positive punishments that same like yeah. smacking them or something like that, uh, they are getting a punishment for the behavior, whatever that behavior is. If you're if even if your timing is excellent, say and you're using a punishment with excellent timing and it should work because punishment part of learning theory says if you punish something, that behavior will go away. If that behavior does not go away, what's happening? You're not punishing the behavior is what's happening Yeah. because either your timing's wrong and you're punishing the wrong behavior or your association is wrong. So they're associating that punishment with something else Yeah. because your timing is wrong. And often that association can be wide ranging. So they might also, they might have a negative association with you because you're the one administering the punishment. And if the punishment hasn't been administered, say, at exactly the right time, then it's confusing punishment as well. Yeah. So they may not even understand what it is they're being punished for. So the only thing they're associating it with is you. And that's where you get a dog starting to cower when one person walks into the room. Or yeah. uh, on the positive side of things, 
I was having a conversation with someone. We were talking about dogs and how how the dogs in his house focus on him more than the fam the rest of the family. And the dog that I just adopted is really focused on me. And he says that must be because I'm the alpha. Uh, and I thought, you know what? It's it's not actually because you're the alpha, because that's a whole nother conversation. Right. But you're probably the one who gives the clearest signals. It's not because you're the one who's giving the nicest signals, but the dog understands you better because of your clarity. This makes me feel so good about my life right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. That. Yeah, that makes total sense now. I mean, it's easy to think, you know, the one who feeds them the most, the one who walks them the most, that's the one that gets the attention. But no, if all they do is make associations and connections and they just need guidance to get through this human world that they're in, it would make sense that the one who communicates the clearest is the one that they feel most comfortable looking to guidance for or from. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, learning by association is not all that's going on, obviously, because you, right. you can do t- conditioning and, and more what's called operant training. Um, but but I think people don't think about the learning association. They don't think about that as being a very strong way of training. And it's actually one of the strongest. I, I had a dog who is terrified of humans. He just all humans were scary. We'd go on a walk and and he was a big like shepherdy mastiff mix and he would just lunge and bark at anybody who walked past and you know initially trying to train him this was early in my dog training career i was i was you know trying to figure out how do i just calm him down get him to sit get him to look at me get him to focus yeah. he was so beyond that right he was so out of his ability because he was just freaking out yeah. he didn't want to even take a treat right how am i supposed to train you when you don't take a treat and you don't want me to touch you because that just makes you wild you know even more um so I just tried to walk past as quickly as possible and it was just getting worse and worse yeah. and uh, felt like a bit, a bit of a dog training failure, honestly. Uh, when I What I did was I, I took it straight back to that basic level of understanding, which is learning by association. Mm-hmm. And I forgot the behaviors he is showing me because the behaviors he was showing me were emotional, right? They were his reaction to a fear that he had yeah. internally. These people were not being aggressive towards him, right? They weren't, there wasn't anything that they were doing. Uh, so what I did was I brought his favorite treats and he would see somebody, but before he could react, I would give him a treat. Yeah. But that seeing the person then getting the treat and there would come a time where we'd pa- cross their paths and he wouldn't take the, he'd be freaking out and we'd yeah. go past and I'd give him another treat. As soon as he calmed down, as soon as he could take a treat, I'd give it to him. And yeah. some people might think, oh, you 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 were rewarding the behavior, rewarding the the reactivity. Yeah. But I I wasn't. What I was doing was I was creating a positive association between him and seeing people. And it, you know what? The thing about learning by association is it can take a while. You have yeah. to build up to that. And and then about nine months later, he looked up at a human that was walking towards us, popped out out of nowhere. 10 feet away from us. He was walking ahead of me. He looked up, looked back at me, put himself in the heel position and wagged his tail. That is amazing. I did not teach that behavior. He did it because I fed him that treat at my leg. Every time we saw the human. So he knew that's where it came from. He would just go there to get the treat that he had earned or that he knew was coming because he saw a human. Yes. 
And that's the power of learning by association. And he, he, you know, he'd have slip ups occasionally, but it was such a, it's stronger than operant condition because it's coming from, you know, an internal motivation. Yeah. I could talk about this stuff all day long. I am mm. so fascinated about it. Same. However, we do need to also talk about your podcast. Mm. <laughs> sure. More here. My other favorite subject. Yeah. Right. So what topics do you cover on your podcast? Um, do you have guests? What does that look like? Yeah. So the podcast is generally on average about uh, 50 minutes to an hour. And I am in, I am and having discussions with authors, with professionals, with philosophers, with enthusiasts, people, basically anybody who has an interaction with an animal. But I want to hear it from a lot of different perspectives. So I have a series with a theme and then about six to eight episodes within that series. And we sort of focus on that one theme. Yeah. But I try to hit it from all of these different, um, you know, worldviews, perspectives. A lot of my guests are uh, global because I lived in uh, four, four different countries now. I oh, my don't remember. I did. I did a lot of traveling yeah. um, and, and I lived there and I worked with animal welfare in a lot of those places. And so I was able to pull from those experiences and those connections to to start the podcast and really get a lot of diversity within the voices that you're hearing and the, the subjects that we're covering. So yeah. it's it's really great. And what I what I realized doing all of that too, besides that I actually really like talking to people almost as much as I like hanging out with animals, is that there's a real need for good information about our interaction with animals yes. and how humans connect with animals. And and it's it's something that I'm seeing more and more, you know, there's tons of misunderstood data out there, misinformation out there around how humans and animals interact uh, around everything really, but for, for the, for this purpose around humans and animals. And I really feel like there needs to be more people out there getting their voices heard and podcasting is a great way to do that, right? It's accessible just about anybody can can listen to a podcast and honestly just about anybody can create a podcast. Right. I mean honestly if I can do it <laughs> anybody can do it. Um right. it's it's not it's not that it's uh it's not that it's simple but it is easy. Yeah. And if uh if I can help in any way to 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 get more animal advocacy, more animal welfare, voices out there talking about their mission, talking about their message, you know, even the researchers, I feel like researchers should have more of a voice because you, you, most of us do not have access to academic journals, right? That's where the research is. Right. And researchers are really focused on getting their information into academic journals because it helps, it helps their career, you know, and it helps their standing within the academic community. It helps, uh, you know, they can't even get more money to do more research if they don't get published. Right. But what that means is that that access is really minimal for the rest of us. We get the bare minimum of what comes out of their research yeah. and and we get it through a, a traditional media filter, which isn't necessarily bad, but it's also often hyperbolized or oversimplified yeah. and uh, and hard to understand because they're not really understanding it. So it might not even come across, you know, the what what is actually trying to to be said or what has actually been discovered through the research. Yeah. So 
for researchers to get out there and get onto podcasts or to start their podcasts about their research, I think is really important. So what I've been doing over the last uh, year or so is, uh, first of all, covering conferences. So going, uh, attending conferences with the, you know, the the support of the person running the conference, uh, interviewing the speakers or a handful of the speakers and and doing an episode with them. Yeah. So they can get the research or their mission message out there. And uh, the other thing I've been doing is also, and this is also this, some of these uh, mini series are within the podcast already that I'm doing, but I'm also trying to encourage other people to start their own podcast. So I've been talking at conferences to, to show people how easy it is to show people the importance and the need for it and to hopefully uh, get the idea out there that this is something that can be done. So it's something that if people are interested in doing, they can go onto my website and click consult services and set up a free a chat with me about starting their own animal welfare advocacy uh, podcast. Nice. That yeah. is awesome. I would love more shelters to do that. It's such a great way to outreach for the community. For sure. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I love that. So what is your website? Website is thedealwithanimals.com. So easy. So easy. And I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter at TDWA podcast. Is it even called Twitter anymore? Uh, I feel like Elon Musk just went and changed the name. Yes, technically but, changed it to X, but <laughs> so much fun. Right. So you can find me though on social media. Maybe <laughs> I'll even start an Instagram. I have pa- a Patreon account. If anyone wants to look into, you know, what's on there, we're going to be doing some bonus content. I have a newsletter you can sign up for on the website. So all sorts of ways to come into my parlor and take a look around at what we're doing at the deal with animals. I love it so much. Marika, thank you for this conversation. It was amazing. And, um, I love the work that you're doing so much. I do too. It's exciting. (laughs) I love it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my, my pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have ideas for future guests, please email me at theanimalrescuepodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or follow me at the animal rescue pod on Instagram.